Amen. Let's look in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. We're going to begin reading in verse 1. I just want to share a message entitled, The Fullness of Christ. The Fullness of Christ. Now, Colossians uh, chapter 1. We'll read right down to verse 20. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timotheus, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae. Grace be unto you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which ye have to all the saints, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. Wherefore ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you, as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit, as it doth also in you. Since the day ye heard of it, and knew uh, the grace of God in truth, as ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, unto all patience and longsuffering with joyfulness." giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether to be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell." And having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Let's pray. God, we're so thankful to have the word of God in front of us, how precious it is to be able to read it. Uh, Lord, be able to meditate upon it, preach from it, Lord, study it. I just pray that the Holy Spirit will be our guide and teacher tonight as we consider the fullness of Christ. And uh, Lord, may we uh, be diligent to compare Scripture with Scripture, and Lord, to be able to leave here knowing that we've come to a greater understanding of our God. I would pray, Lord, if there is someone here that's not saved, that they would be convicted and they would come and receive Christ as their Savior. And so God, bless the preaching of the Word of God in Jesus' name, amen. Our text verse is verse 19, for it pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell, the fullness of Christ. What a great text verse here telling us about Jesus 
The word fullness in this verse is, comes from the Greek word meaning to be wholly occupied with or to be perfect. And so the fullness of Christ, we're talking about the reality of who Jesus is, that he is absolutely complete within himself and complete within the Father, and, uh, and he is completely occupied of all that there is to declare or experience in reference to who God is. And the Father was pleased to establish it that way that all the fullness should dwell in Jesus Christ. Back in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 19 is another place where this word is used uh, for fullness. And it speaks in reference to the fullness of God in Ephesians 3 and verse 19. It says, And to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that ye may be filled with all the fullness of God. And so that word fullness there, the fullness of God, is the same word used in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 19. And it's, once again, it's establishing the concept of knowing the love of Christ, knowing who God is, is based on the reality that everything about God is complete in Jesus Christ. And so Ephesians chapter 5, Paul would go on to say again in chapter 5 and verse 18, uh, and be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. The same word is used in Ephesians 5.18 uh, 5, that was used in chapter 3 and verse 19, in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 19. This matter of the fullness to be wholly occupied with. And so when he says, be filled with the Spirit, he's saying you need to be completely occupied by the Spirit of God. Just like Christ is completely occupied with the reality of all that God is. And so the fullness of Christ uh, is experienced as we surrender ourselves to the Holy Spirit. It's amazing. I've often said we don't need more of the Holy Spirit because God has given us all of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit needs more of us. And we need to be completely, fully occupied with the presence of the Spirit of God in our life. And so the fullness... In Colossians 1, 19, Ephesians 3, 19, Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18 is all dealing with the, whole, the same concept, but in reference to a different element, if you will. One is reference to the fullness of Christ. One is a reference of the fullness of the knowledge of God. And the other is experiencing the fullness of the Spirit of Christ through the Holy Spirit in our life. And so back... In our text verse, it says, For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. This word dwell is an interesting word in the Greek uh, because it's in the aorist tense. Uh, when you study the aorist tense, you find that it is not specifically in regards uh, to past, present, or future. But rather the aorist tense is only interested that there was a point of action at a point of time. And so uh, he says this, there was a point in time uh, when the Father was pleased that all the fullness, the, the reality of the, being completely occupied with everything that God is, that we can grasp about God, was, uh, is in Jesus Christ. The other thing is, is this Greek word for dwell is not only in the aorist uh, tense, but it's also in the active voice. So that means the subject is doing the action. 
and if it's the subject of the sentence in here, for the please the Father. It is the Father who is declaring, it is the Father who established that everything is complete in Jesus Christ. And so we can't find a completeness and knowledge of who God is apart from who Jesus Christ is. And so it's this fullness dwells in Christ. It's in the aorist tense. It's in the active voice. And it's in the infinitive mood. The infinitive mood is expresses purpose of results. So it's amazing thought here in just this little sentence you have very clearly identified the reality that God has a purpose for everything that he does in revealing himself to mankind, and that is absolutely complete and established in all that Jesus Christ is. Thus, when we say that uh, uh, deal with the fullness of Christ, it is something that was not added to Christ but rather it's always been a part of Christ and always will be a part of Christ. Uh, so many times different religions try to say, well, Jesus became God when he was born, when he was conceived of Mary, and all these, no, the completeness of the reality of who God is has been in Christ and always will be in Christ, and uh, it was established in the Godhead by the Father. So it was not something that was added. It was something that was intrinsically a part of all that Christ is. The purpose, since it's, we think of the infinitive mood, the purpose of this would be God revealing himself to man. And uh, God's uh, intention is not that man will be in the dark and not know who he is. God's intention is that man may know who God is and they, they might know the way of salvation. Oftentimes I talk with people and they say, well, nobody can know how to be saved. Then what's the sense in God writing a whole book and giving us all this information that took place in reference to Christ and Christ suffering on the cross and suffering such torment and pain to die for the sins of mankind and reference to the fact that God doesn't want us to know how to be saved. That doesn't make any sense. That's not even, that doesn't make any good logical statement. And so the fullness of Christ is for the express purpose of God revealing himself to man. The action that took place was in a point of time when Jesus walked on this earth as he took on the flesh of human flesh. And, uh, but when he became man, uh, he never stopped being God in the same, at the same time. In Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 8, it says Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that carries right along with the concept that the Father was pleased that in Him all fullness should dwell. There literally is established reality that everything that is about God is in Christ, and it does not change from the beginning, and it will not change at the ending. It's always complete in Christ. So the fullness of Christ. It is so important for people to understand that everything they can experience or know about God has to be seen through the person of Christ. In John chapter 1, follows through with this thought process of Christ coming into this world to reveal the Father. John chapter 1 and verse 18 says, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. 
And so he has made known who God is because of the fact God had determined that the fullness of all that he is is to be seen in Christ, in Christ alone. So the fullness of Christ. Uh, in John chapter 14, we see this once again a statement in reference to the Father dwelling in the Son and being one with the Son. John chapter 14 and verse 9. Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me? A very interesting question that he poses to Philip. And I'm afraid oftentimes we need to pose that question to ourselves. Many times people have been saved a long time and they still do not understand the reality of all that Christ is. And he says, how, how long have I been? I've been a long time with you and yet thou hast not known me, Philip. He that has seen me has seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? And believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me, and the words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth, there's that word again, dwelleth. But the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. And so, uh, literally, the word means to remain or to abide. And Jesus is confronting Philip. He said, you're wanting to see God the Father. And he said, how long have I been with you? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The reality is all the fullness of the reality of who the Father is, is complete in Jesus Christ. And so you can't know God apart from Christ. I've had people over the years say, well, I don't believe in that being born again and trusting Jesus, but I believe in God. Well, you might believe in a God, but you don't believe in the God because you cannot comprehend the God apart from the reality that the fullness of God dwells within Jesus Christ. And so the Father dwelleth, remains, and abides in him. That's why in John 10, 30, Jesus said, I and my Father are one. And so the Father and Son are one together, uh, complete in each other. Uh, when John chapter 10 and verse 30, when he says, I and my Father are one, it means one virtually by union, literally one and the same. So you can't look at the Father and say, well, I need to know Jesus. Or you look at the Jesus and say, well, I need to know who the Father is. They are one in the same. They're absolutely identical, complete in, in themselves. And so the fullness of Christ. Everything about God, His holiness, His perfection, His love, His power, His eternality, His justice, any character trait that you can comprehend in your mind or on your heart that you want to know about God is complete in Jesus Christ at all times, past, present, and future, and there's never a moment in time where that completeness is not in Jesus Christ. The Father was pleased that in Him all fullness should dwell. And so everything that we know about God is seen in Jesus Christ, the fullness of Christ. How important it is for us to understand the completeness of God in Christ Jesus. So let's think of a few things here tonight in reference to the fullness of Christ. Uh, first of all, he is the one who knows your sins 
before you confess them. If he is everything that God is, and he's omniscient, he's omnipresent, he's all-powerful, you think of all the character traits that God is, then that means that Christ Jesus is the one, the fullness of God in him, is that he is the one who knows our sins before we confess them. Over in John chapter 4, we're going to look at some different passages just to consider this thought. In John chapter 4, we have Jesus confronting the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 in reference to knowing her sins before she confessed them. And uh, the amazing thing is people don't want to acknowledge that they're sinners, but God already knows that you're a sinner before you even become aware of the fact that you're a sinner. And so he knows everything from the beginning to the end. In John chapter 4, in verse 16, notice it says here, Jesus saith unto her, Go call thy husband and come hither. He knows you before your, uh, knows your sins before you confess them. This Samaritan woman, there was a very personal question that was given to her. He tells her, Go call thy husband and come hither. Now, Jesus is already aware of the fact that she is not married. Jesus is already aware of the fact uh, that uh, she is living a life of sin. He is already aware of that, but the personal question that he poses to her requires of her to acknowledge who she is and what she's doing in her life. A personal question. You know, you would do well, uh, instead of preaching at people, Ask people questions. And, uh, you know, they need to acknowledge the fact of who they are and what they are doing. God already knows they're a sinner. God already knows their condition. Because the reality of everything that God is is in Christ. And so he's posing to her a very personal question that's going to force her to look at the reality of her life. So it's a personal question. Notice the practical qualification here in verse 17. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. So it didn't take her long to figure that out. He said, go get, he didn't go say, go get your oh, partner. He didn't say, go get your friend. He said, go get your husband. And she said, answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, thou hast well said, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands. And he whom thou now hast is not thy husband, and that saidest thou truly. And so, very practical qualification here in reference to this woman's condition. Jesus, she's acknowledging the fact that she has no husband, but Jesus takes it the next step and tells her, well, wait a minute, you're right, you're, you're being honest about the fact that you don't have any husband, but the reality is if you had more than one husband. And so he qualifies the necessity for her to be willing to surrender her life to Christ. And the, the reality of all that God is and all that God could be to her is summed up in the person of Christ. And so practical qualification. Notice there's a powerful presentation in verse 19. The woman said, and I'm sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. And the amazing thing is this. She's never met Christ before. Uh, she has no idea who it is that she's speaking to. Uh, she did not come to him for spiritual instruction. 
But because of the fact that Christ is being practical in causing her to evaluate her life, she is well aware of the fact that her life is corrupt and her life that is, is a mess and that she is breaking the law of God. And so she is acknowledging the fact that, uh, that she needs to get right with God. So the powerful presentation here in verse 24 he follows up the reminder because she starts talking about worship. And he says in verse 24, God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, it's a tremendous statement because if all the fullness of God dwells in Christ, then man has no right to try to establish worship that's not in reference to the fullness of Christ. And so he confronts her with this reality that God is a spirit and you must worship him in spirit and truth. And the woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he would tell us all things. And Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. When he makes that statement, when he makes that statement, he is presenting to her the fullness of God in himself. I am he. And this brings great conviction on this woman. And we know as we read through the rest of the story here that this woman trusts Christ as her Savior. And there's multitudes of others that are brought to Christ because of her testimony. What took place here? All that Christ did in the fullness of God in Christ was present to her that he already knew about her sins before she was willing to acknowledge it. She certainly didn't look at uh, divorcing her husbands as being a sin because she's been married several times. And she certainly didn't look at committing adultery or fornication as being a sin because she was involved in, in a, a, a relationship that was corrupt. But when she is confronted with the fullness of Christ, immediately she gets under conviction, perceives that he is a prophet, and he acknowledges the fact that he is the Messiah. And now the completeness of the reality of God has to put her in a position that she has to make a decision. And that is what people need to hear. People need to see the fullness of what God is and who God is that they cannot argue against the reality that they have to get right with him. And so the Samaritan woman is a good illustration that God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the one who knows our sins before we even confess them ourselves. You know, we don't confess our sins because we have to tell God about it. We have to confess our sins so that we might get in agreement with God. Can two walk together except they be agreed? And confession of sin is we just acknowledging that we're already condemned in our sin and God already knows what our sin is. And I don't have to remind him what my sin is. I need to tell myself what my sin is. And then God saves our soul. He brings conviction and he converts us. And so the Samaritan woman is a good illustration. In John chapter 8, we have the woman taken in adultery. And as she's caught in adultery, she's brought before Jesus by the Pharisees. And I'm always interested by this story because of the fact that uh, they were, she was caught in the very act. My first question is always is, where the man, where's the man? You know, he's just as guilty as she is. 
And so the adulterous woman, notice in verse 7, 8, there's accusers that are convicted. So, so when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now they brought this woman, they're accusing her uh, of being in this uh, immoral act. And Jesus, instead of dealing with the woman, he deals with the individuals. And he starts dealing with these accusers. Well, wait a minute. If you feel as though she's broke the law, then those of you that are accusing her, why don't he who is without sin, why don't you pick up the throw for a stone? And so the, confused, the accusers are convicted because of the fact uh, that none of them could stand there and be sinless because they are standing in the presence of the completeness of God in Christ Jesus. And so he, he confronts the accusers and the accusers are convicted. They can't throw the stone because they know they're sinful. There is an individual that is confronted in verse 9. And they which heard it being convicted by their own conscience went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. And so the individual confronted. Uh, all the accusers are gone. Uh, all the con- uh, accusers are convicted. Uh, in the presence of the completeness of God, man cannot stand. And now there's just one individual before him. Christ is left alone with this woman. And then in verse 10 and 11, we see grace that is extended. In uh, verse 10, it says, And when Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? And she said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. And so the grace that is extended to her, the completeness of God, and the grace of God and the mercy of God is extended to her through Christ because of the fact uh, that uh, she doesn't deserve to be forgiven, but that's what grace does. Grace says, I wash the the slate clean. I give you new life, Uh, but to go and sin no more. And so we see that he's the one who knows our sins before we confess them. He knew this woman was caught in adultery before the men brought her to him. He knew the sins that were in the lives of the individuals who were bringing the accusation. And in the completeness and fullness of Christ, man cannot stand and justify himself because of the holiness and completeness of God. So we see the Samaritan woman, the adulterous woman, and then we see the redemption that is complete through faith in Christ and Christ alone. In Hebrews and chapter 10 and verse 19, redemption that is complete in Christ. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 19 says, Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. See, it was pleased the Father that in Christ that all the fullness, all the completeness of the reality of God is fulfilled in Christ. Why? Because he shed his blood on Calvary to provide the means of redemption for mankind. And so now man is complete in Christ because God is complete in Christ. 
All that God is seeing and experienced is in reference to who Christ is. So he is the one who knows your sins before you confess them. You realize that Jesus died on the cross some 2,000 years ago for your sins. You are not even in the thought process of being conceived. You had no life. You were not brought into this world. But yet Christ had already died for your sins. Why? Because the fullness of Christ is that he knows our sins before we ever commit them. And then he died on the Calvary so that we might be set free from our sins. So he's the one who knows our sins before we confess them. The second thing I see with the completeness of Christ is that he is the one who walks with us. He walks with us. In John chapter 6, we find the disciples in a boat and they're on the sea. And uh, it's, it's not a pleasure cruise, that's for sure. And in John chapter 6 and verse 18 through 21, we see the distress of the disciples. John chapter 6 and uh, verse 18 if I can get over there, I'll get over there. And it says that, And the sea arose by reason of a great wind that blew. And so here they are, they're on the sea, they're in their boat. The distress of the disciples is that the storms came. And may I say this, that the storms are going to come in your life. And Jesus knew this storm was coming before the disciples ever got in the boat. And the storms that are coming in your life, the completeness and the fullness of Christ in your life, he is there to prepare you for the storms that you have to go through. And so here are the disciples, the distress of the disciples. Uh, there's a storm that came. The sea arose by reason of a great wind. I see that their Savior is near, even when there is a storm. In verse 19, it says, so when they had rowed about five and 20 or 30 furlongs, they see Jesus walking on the sea, drawing nigh unto the ship, and they were afraid. And I think that's a key thought there. He was drawing nigh unto the ship. In the midst of storms, remember this, at times of great distress, because everything about God and what we can know about God is complete in Christ, then we never have to be concerned about the fact that Jesus is not near when the storm comes, he is always near us and he is always there to protect us and to deliver us. So the Savior is near. And then I see in verse 20 and 21, the sinners change. Notice 20. It says, first of all, in verse 19, they said they were afraid. He saith unto them, it is I, be not afraid. Then they willingly received him into the ship. And immediately the ship was at the land whither they went. I mean, you talk about putting it in gear. And he got to the land real quick. And so uh, the sinners changed. They were afraid of what they saw in reference to Christ coming on the water. But when they realized it was Jesus, they willingly received him into the ship. If we can just present to people the completeness and the fullness of Christ in reality that he is the one who is near during the storm and he is the one that can calm the heart of fear in individuals, then we can overcome a great distresses in our life. 
You know, this whole thing right now with the coronavirus, uh, there is so much hype and so much fear being instilled in people. You understand that God is still on the throne and God is still in control. And as a Christian, our life is hid in Christ. We are complete in Christ. And listen, if the virus should come and God takes me home to glory, his will be accomplished. I don't understand why we are so fearful of uh, just another disease that is in the world. Because the reality is there's, when this disease is gone, there'll be another one that'll come. And I'm not trying to downplay this thing, but I think we need a, a touch of reality that as believers in Christ, we can trust in the living God. And when we're stressed out and we're distressed in life because the storm is raging, there is a God who is still near to us that can change the outcome in our life. And he changed the outcome in the life of these disciples. And so how did he do that? He's The complete fullness of all that God is, is in Christ Jesus. So the distress of the disciples. I saw and I thought about this, the difficulty of Israel, studying the history of Israel. The history of Israel is saturated with the reality that God is with them. And I'm thankful that as we study the history of Israel, we see God is with them. That reminds me that God is with us. Israel went through 400 years, 430 actually, of slavery. They experienced 40 years of wandering in the wilderness and not knowing where water or food was going to come from. Uh, they spent many years of battles in the Canaan land as they would fight the enemy that would be around them. They were overwhelmed by times of backsliding away from their God. That's why we have the book of Judges that reminds us of their backslidden state over and over again. But the reality of going through all these things, God was still with them. And he still called them the apple of his eye. And so the distress of disciples reminds us that God is the one, Christ is the one who walks with us. When we're distressed, when we're going through difficult times, and I thought about the delight of the believer. We delight ourselves in the Lord. We are satisfied in him because the completeness of all that God is, is filled in Christ. In Hebrews chapter 13 and 5, says, let your conversation be without covetousness. So surrendered character, character. The delight of the believer is that we surrender our character and who we are to Christ and Christ alone. Let your conversation, conversation is a Greek word that just means lifestyle, your manner of living. Let it be without covetousness. Why? Because I can surrender who I am to the God who can care for me because he is the one who is near unto me. And so surrendered character. Service while content. Says be content with such things as you have. And so the delight of the believer is, yes, I'm going to serve God, and I might not have what everyone else has, and I might not be able to experience what other people experience, but wait a minute, I can still serve God with satisfaction and contentment because the reality is everything that God is is fulfilled in my Savior, Jesus Christ. And then I see they're secure in Christ. Why? He's saying, for he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And so it doesn't matter what goes on. 
if God the Father was pleased in the Christ, the fullness of God would be experienced in Christ, then I can trust that he's going to keep walking with me no matter what I'm facing in life. I see another thing here. He is the one who goes before us. He's the one that goes before us. And oftentimes we think we're the only ones that we're the ones that establish and blaze the trail of Christianity. No, it's Christ went before us. Uh, listen, he was despised before you were despised. And John chapter 15 and verse uh, 25 says, But this cometh to pass, that the word might be fulfilled, that it is written in their law, they hated me without a cause. And any, any despising of your faith, realize this, that Christ experienced before you ever experienced it. He experienced it by prophecy. No, Isaiah and other prophets in the Old Testament prophesied that when the Messiah would come, he would be despised, he would be rejected. Uh, he was despised by practice. In other words, in his li earthly life, uh, he was beaten and battered, bruised. He was questioned. He was accused. Uh, all these different things, he was despised. So what makes us think that we're greater than our master? And so he is the one who goes before us. And so anything that I experience in my life absolutely cannot measure up to what he experienced in his 33 years on this earth, but I'm thankful that I have a Savior who's complete, the reality of all that God is, is in Christ, and he suffered those things for me, then I can suffer those things for him. When you think about the resurrection, he's resurrected for us. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15, says, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? And uh, in verse 18, it says, and he is the head of the body, the church, which is the beginning, uh, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. And so he arose out of the, gra the grave victorious. And as he arose out of the grave, it gives me hope that, wait a minute, the grave is not the end. Death has no hold on the believer we're going to be resurrected because of the fact that he arose. You read John, I mean, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the great resurrection chapter. The apostle Paul writes about the resurrection of Christ. If he not be not risen, then your faith is in vain. But yet it was pleased to Father that in him all completeness and fullness would dwell. He ascended into heaven first. Acts chapter 1 and verse 9 says, And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. I'm thankful that we have a Savior who goes before us. He shows us how to live. He shows us how to die. He shows us how to get to heaven. I'm thankful that I have a Savior that goes before me. And so he shows me all that God is in reference to where I need to go and what I need to accomplish. Then the last thought is this. Not only is he the one who goes before us, he's the one who's coming again. Hallelujah. Based on the enduring promise of God, in John 14, 3, Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. If I go prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. The amazing thing is uh, we can be assured that he's coming again based on the enduring promise. You say, how do you know that's true? Because it pleased the Father 
that a fullness of all that God is, is in Christ Jesus. So if Jesus Christ is God from eternity past to eternity future, and he is so stated that he's preparing a place for me, then I can be assured of and stand on the promise of God that will not fail because he is a God who cannot lie. And so the full completeness of Christ ensures the promise of eternity being fulfilled in our life. And uh, I'll tell you, it's a horrible place to be if you have a God that you can't trust, a God that does not have integrity to stand behind his promises. And so he is the one who's coming again, enduring the promise. But releasing the power. Uh, in Acts 1.8, Jesus said, But ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Uh, he promised in John 14.16, I will send thee a comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Not only do we have an enduring promise that he's coming to receive us up into heaven, but there is the release of his power in our life based on his coming to us. He would send his Holy Spirit upon us. And then I just thought of Revelation chapter 1. There's the returning potentate. And I had to put potentate down because it had a P to match promise and power. Amen. But he's the coming king. And uh, he is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. And Revelation 1, 7 says, Behold, he cometh with clouds and every eye shall see him. And they also which pierced him. And all the kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. Then he says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is is to come, the Almighty. And so the fullness of Christ is the reality that he is the king who is returning in all of mankind on the face of this earth or under the earth, are going to weep and wail because of him, because they're going to look on the one who is the completeness of God Almighty, whom they pierced and they crucified. And he's going to come and rule with a rod of iron. And so we have a Savior that shows to us the completeness or the fullness of God, the fullness of Christ. It pleased the Father. You say, why does it have to be that way? Because it pleased the Father. It pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. That's why we have to make much of Christ. That's why we must uh, really live our lives as these lapel pins state. He must increase. And he must increase. Because within himself he possesses everything about the reality of all that God is. And you cannot, listen, you cannot know God apart from the fullness of Christ. I'm glad, listen, I'm glad I got a Savior that is everything that I've ever needed or ever will need in reference to who God is, is found in Jesus Christ, the fullness of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for allowing us to contemplate this subject of the fullness of Christ. Lord, may we never forget there's not anything that we're missing out on um, that uh, as we surrender our life to Christ. Everything about you, the Father in heaven, is seen, experienced, and complete in Christ. And so, Lord, I prayed you'd help us to, to remember constantly 
uh, all that we have and experience because of the fullness of Christ. Lord, I would pray if there's someone here tonight who's never been saved, they never trusted Jesus, this Jesus, who's the eternal God, as their personal Savior, I pray they would come tonight and be born again. Lord, I pray for your blessing in this invitation. In Jesus' name, amen.